new sermon series in the book of Daniel. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. A Bible will come to you. And if you are using one of the Bibles that we provided, you can flip like pretty much halfway through your Bible. That's page 187, uh, 187, 875 in one of those books, one of those Bibles. My guess is that if you are a parent or a grandparent, an aunt or an uncle, if you're just living right now, my guess is that you have concerns for this generation, for future generations. And one of your concerns is, as it relates to kind of a fundamental question, how do you live faithfully to God in the midst of our arguably increasingly hostile and secular world? How can you live faithfully to God? I mean, it's not just high schoolers or middle schoolers or college students who feel this peer pressure to assimilate into the wider culture. But but we live in an increasingly hostile world. I mean, you just go to the grocery store, you just live life, and you realize, oh, this world is increasingly sexualized? How do you live faithful in the midst of it all? It's a hard thing to think about. And it's not just youth. It's all of us, right? I mean, just think vocationally. How can you live faithfully to God in any job? So, so for instance, rhetorically speaking, can you live faithfully to God if you work at a hospital that performs gender reassignment surgery? Or can you work for a builder... And the owner comes to you and says, we're going to build houses, but in order to make more money, I need you to use cheaper material. Can you live faithful to God when that happens? Can you live faithful to God? And you just fill in the blank, right? Or think about the NFL, all right? Some of you are like itching for your fantasy football apps right now. Can you be a Christian football player in the NFL? Maybe you're in kind of intuitive answer is, well, of course. Well, at least nine months out of the year, you can't come to church. You can't be a meaningful member in any kind of conceivable way. Can you be faithful to God and be a football player in the NFL? What about retirement? Uh, We do check-ins as elders every once in a while, and consistently, Mark Methuen will say, And ask the question, I want to be faithful in my retirement, but it's hard to know what does it look like to be faithful to God in my retirement? I'm asking you all these rhetorical questions because it's hard. It's complicated. Living in this world means that it's hard to answer the question, what does it look like to be faithful to God in any vocation? When I came here about four years ago, I resolved to take the membership directory and try to have lunch with every man in our membership directory, close to their work and ask the fundamental question, which is, what does faithfulness look like in your work? And I promise you, as I hear stories, it's hard. Being faithful to God, whatever your work is, whatever your vocation is, is complicated and it's hard. 
Can you be faithful to God in an increasingly secular and hostile world? Is it possible? Today we're going to look at the book of Daniel, and we're going to look at chapter 1. We're going to slowly go through the entire book this fall. And when you open the book of Daniel, you need to realize that right from the beginning, this sort of rug is pulled from under our feet. As our story begins, and actually as our story ends, the people of God are in captivity. They're in exile. And the exile kind of came in waves. In 605 BC, the Babylonians sieged the small nation of Israel and took men of nobility, which among that group, Daniel and his friends were counted. Then about eight years later, another kind of uh, group of the nobility, the elite, were taken back to Babylon. And then finally, in the year 587 BC, Babylon finished what they started. And they took basically most of the rest of Israel back to Babylon with them. They destroyed the walls of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple of Jerusalem. The kingdom's gone. The king's gone. Just think about all of what God's people have lost when we open up Daniel 1. They've lost their home, their friends, family, children, their place of worship. They've lost a lot. The, really, the fundamental question isn't what they've lost. I mean, we could make a list of all the things that they've lost. The fundamental question is, have they lost God? Because it's clear why the captivity happened, why the exile happened. It was their sin. They broke the covenant. And so, for 70 years, they were to live in a hostile world, a pagan land, to live under unjust rulers. And the question for God's people is this. As they lived in this pagan land, as they lived in this under unjust, corrupt rulers and kings, the question for them is, could they be faithful to God? And would God go with them? I want you to see as we go through the book of Daniel, that the book of Daniel, it's a book about comfort. It's a book about a comfort to God's people living under occupied rule. And it's about what does it look like to be faithful to God when you're living in a faithless world? Sound applicable? So, can you live faithful to God today in Puyallup, in the state of Washington, in 2023? 23, I'm getting ahead of myself. Whatever year it is, can you live faithful to God? Well, the book of Daniel, I think, is going to tell us, yes, you can. And Daniel is going to show the way. The big idea, and then we're going to slowly kind of work our way through this chapter in three parts. The big idea is simply this. As you live in the world, verse 1 to 8, yet distinct from the world, verse 9 to 16, God is with you, verse 18 to 21. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. 
and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, use without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. We'll stop there. So first one. Go back up to verse 1. It sort of sets our scene, right? This is the third year of Jehoiakim, who is the king of Judah. And the king of Babylon comes, named Nebuchadnezzar, and he is the most powerful man in the world. And he besieges Jerusalem. More than that, look look at verse 2. He doesn't just besiege Jerusalem. He desecrates it. He takes religious items, sacred items, Things that did not belong to him, but that belonged to God. And he takes them, and he brings them back to Babylon. Actually, more than that, doesn't he, right? He doesn't just take the things that belong to God in the temple of God. He takes those things, and he puts them in the treasury of his God. In the land of Shinar. Now, where where have you heard that name before? Or rather, where have you heard that place well, you got to go back to Genesis chapter 11. It's connected to the Tower of Babel. And so right from the beginning, as it relates to the setting, our author wants us to, to be reminded of Babel. And in some ways, that things haven't gotten much better since Babel. Babylon is an evil place. It's a kingdom of darkness. A place with people proud that they are defiant against God and his people. Babylon is Mordor. That's the setting. It's dark, ominous, and God's people are going there. But that's not all the king took, is it? Right? He didn't just take the, these religious items. The, 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 the king, Nebuchadnezzar, using a kind of a lesser commander, he took the best and brightest in Jerusalem. Youth. In their teens, 13 to 18. That's, that's Daniel when we go. Okay, so the youth, this sermon's for you, okay? You're, you're Daniel and his friends. 13 to 18, that's who he takes. He, and he takes, you know, the honor roll student, right? The, the bookish student, the, the best looking, the best athletes. He, he, Nebuchadnezzar takes the cream of the crop, the best and brightest, the most popular and good looking, and he takes them back to Babylon. He plunders the youth group at Jerusalem church. Plunders it. And what does he do? He transfers these kids, these youths, from the University of Jerusalem to the University of Babylon. Did you notice that? For three years, he's going to, they're going to be educated in in the, the language of Babylon, in the literature of Babylon, in the religion of Babylon. 
And if they pass these three years of re-education, they're going to be given government jobs. And then verse 6, we meet our characters, right? Four boys, all carted off. And what we learn about them is not only are they carted off, not only do they lose their land, they lose their names. They're no longer called by their Hebrew names. They're given pagan Babylonian names. Now, historians will talk about kind of there's three strategies. When a, one, one nation conquers another nation, there's sort of three options. Option one, you take the land and you disperse it among your own people. But that makes the conquered nation pretty mad and they usually rebel. So, so many times conquering nations kind of didn't do that. The, the second option was to enslave the people. But it's a lot of work. But the third option, maybe the most insidious and the most effective, is assimilation. And that is what Babylon did. They took them, the best and brightest, and they re-educated them, reprogrammed them, sought to brainwash these boys. Not only would they strip them of their family, they would now give them a new family. Not only would they strip them of their education, their particularly religious education, they would give them new education. And not only would they strip them of their names, they would now give them new names. And, and, and their names aren't even like subtle, right? So I'll just give you one example, and this is all the way through. But Hananiah means God has been gracious. Hananiah's new pagan name, Shadrach, means worshiper of Aku, the moon god. Not even subtle. His point is, no longer are you in the worship and service of your God. You're now in the worship and service of Babylon and our gods and the king. Let me just put this in context. I'll give you a kind of a contemporary example. Imagine Russia conquering Ukraine. And imagine then they cart off the best and brightest youths, 13 to 18, and they take them back to Russia. Right? And imagine that, that the majority are Christians. And then they put them in, you know, Stalin University. And for three years, just seek to program them with communist propaganda, atheism, and all the sorts. And for three years, they're there. And then they give them new names. No longer are they like Joshua, given like kind of wonderful names. But they're given names that mean things like Marx is my God. And then, after three years of graduating, they then get positions in the Kremlin and the KGB. That's the setting. That, that's sort of what's going on here. That's Daniel. Now, we want to skip to verse 8, I think. There's sort of subtle rebellion and resistance. But I think we need to sit in this for a second. Because before we get to how they resist... Before we get to how they push back, notice what they don't do. They go to school. They seem to respond to these Babylonian names. And if you think that, that schooling or even like public school is bad, they had to take classes at the University of Babylon in the occult, divination, right? Like the, the University of Babylon was much more like Hogwarts than it was like Pierce College. And they did it. They answered to their pagan names. They, they wore Babylonian clothing. And eventually, 
and we'll see this, they took up government jobs at and in the most corrupt government at the time. I mean, the king in which they served, we'll see this in number, uh, chapter 2, he just gets mad that no one can interpret his team under the most ridiculous circumstances, and he says, I'm just going to wipe out any smart person in the kingdom. I mean, this guy is a narcissist, crazy. And it might sound like them doing all this is compromised, but if you just read it, there's no hint that these young men, these particularly four youth, compromise in any way. These are not the sort of guys to compromise, are they, right? These are the sorts of guys and men that go into lion's dens. These are the sorts of men of courage that are going to go to a fiery furnace. These are not the men that compromise. But neither are they assimilating. These men are worthy of emulating. But what they don't do is they don't flee. They don't withdraw. And I think the reason is because they knew their Bibles. Prior to the book of, of Daniel, we have this prophet Jeremiah. And he spoke about the time that God's people would be in exile. And some people would, were prophesying at that time, men like Hananiah. And, and Hananiah was kind of, you know, he was uh, optimistic. And, and so he said, he was this prophet who was like, well, ah, God's not going to really send you guys for 70 years in exile. It's just going to be for a couple years. So what you should do is just kind of hunker down, flee for a while, and just wait it out. And Jeremiah comes and basically says, Hananiah, you're dead wrong. You'll read it. You'll know why that's sort of funny. But. And Jeremiah has the word of the Lord that comes to him. This is, this is what the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah as it relates to the exile. Reread this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile, from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce. Take wives and sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Don't decrease. But seek the welfare or the prosperity of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to God on the city's behalf, for in their prosperity will be your prosperity. What's God saying? Don't run. Don't flee. Put down roots. God is saying it's possible to be faithful to God in Babylon. Far from saying it's possible, he's saying, this is what I'm calling you to do. I'm calling you to live faithful to me as you live in Babylon. Now, Daniel and his friends, they're outnumbered, aren't they? They're outmatched. But they don't run. They don't flee. They root their lives in Babylon. And they obey God's prophetic word, spoken to by Jeremiah. And what we're going to soon see all throughout this is that God prospers his people in Babylon. I mean, as painful as that probably was, as difficult it must have been, as complicated. I mean, these are complicated matters. They put their fear to the side, and they didn't listen to their sort of natural reflexes to fight or flight. They listened to their God, and they lived faithfully to God in Babylon. 
However, there were lines they would not cross. Part two, go to verse eight. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who has signed your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Let us then let our appearance and the appearance of the youth who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days at the end Of ten days, it seemed that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youth who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So we'll stop there. Sort of part two. The plot thickens. Daniel and friends, they're going to school. They're living in Babylon and they're living their lives. But as they live their lives, they don't assimilate. Actually, they live their lives Quite distinctively, they would not be defiled by the king's food and the king's drink. Verse 8. Now, there's some debate on why. I mean, is it because the food wasn't kosher? The food itself was unclean? Well, maybe, but, but maybe not, because wine nowhere is called um, unclean in the Old Testament or New Testament. But maybe it's because, which it would have been, the, the king's food and drink would have been sacrificed to other gods. So, so it's probably connected to idolatry, but I think even more so because of the repetition that this is the king's food, it's the king's drink. I think it is that this food and this drink, whatever it was, it was so connected to the king and under his sort of authority and ownership that to eat it and drink it, in their estimation, was a sign of moral and ethical compromise. Whatever it was, they could not in good conscience eat the king's food and drink the king's wine and be faithful to God. Their consciences wouldn't allow it. But just think about the pressure. Think about the enormous pressure. 13 to 18-year-olds can you just imagine the, the other youth just being like, come on, it's just food. It's not a big deal. You're in Babylon. Do as the Babylonians do. Your God will forgive you. It's not a big deal. Or maybe just think about them thinking of their stomachs. I mean, the king's food, it had to have been pretty good food. Richest country in the world at this point. The food and drink had to be pretty good. And so you can imagine the temptation to just think with your stomach. On Friday, I was at the fair at lunchtime, and there's a lot of smells going around. You know what I'm talking about, right? And my stomach began to grumble, and I was so hungry. I just wanted so badly to eat the fair's food. But I knew that if I did, I would be defiled. 
just joking. You know what I mean. No, no, right? But I did. I mean, I had like a peanut butter and jelly down, and I was like, I don't really want to eat that. I want to eat all this other food. I mean, just the temptation. I mean, they're looking at Brussels sprouts and then filet mignon of the king. I mean, that's quite the temptation. Not easy. And yet here we have the first hint at resistance. Twice our text tells us that they did not defile themselves. Like they were resolved to not be defiled. These men were serious about their faithfulness to God. But look at the form of it. Look at the form of their resistance. The man in charge of Daniel and his friend, he's, he's worried. He's like, okay, if you don't eat the food's, uh, food and drink, uh, it's going to be my head on the chopping block, right? And so Daniel hatches a plan. Remember, Daniel's pretty wise. He's one of the wisest. He's there because he's wise, right? Sometimes it... It's good to get seized, right? You might be still in Jerusalem. So Daniel goes to the palace, doesn't go to the palace master. He goes to someone under the palace master and says, I got a plan, a test. We see that in verse 11 to 13. It's a simple test. It says, okay, for 10 days, we'll eat food and vegetables, and then you can kind of look at us and look at the other youth, and you can compare us. It's only 10 days. I mean, what harm could it? do. You're not going to get your head chopped off for that. Under verse 14, we, we get our official answer, right? He goes, okay, we'll do it. He agrees to it. For 10 days, they do this. And then verse 15, the official tests them and realizes that they are better off in appearance than the other men who ate the king's food. And so Daniel and the others are allowed to eat vegetable and drink water. Now, 10 days I mean, have you ever gone on a diet for 10 days? My guess is I could work out every day. I could take weight gainer and protein powers. You could shoot me up with steroids, and after 10 days, you wouldn't see any noticeable difference in my body. Right? 10 days is a very short period of time to see any difference. And yet, for 10 days, they go protein deficient and eat Brussels sprouts and vegetables and drink only water, and they are fatter than the other ones, the other youth. I'm no nutritionist, but something sounds fishy here. But they take their stand, don't they? They resist, and evidently God honors them. Now, this is hard to do. It's really hard to take a stand, and it's really hard to be consistent in your stand. Because all of us, and I mean all of us, we live inconsistent as it relates to our faithfulness to God. There are areas in our life that we're faithful, that we would die for, but then there's other areas in which we morally and ethically are compromised. None of us live perfectly on that razor's edge of in the world, but not of the world. None of us except for one. See, Daniel points us to one who actually did live perfectly on that razor's edge, who perfectly lived in the world, but not of the world. Daniel points us to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, too, lived in the world, was sent from heaven to earth, sinful, broken earth, and he took on humanity. 
but he did not assimilate to the sin of the world. He who knew no sin became sin. He perfectly lived in the world, incarnate in the world, made up his residence in the world, took roots in the world in his incarnation, and yet was not of the world, never sinned, was never morally or ethically compromised. And he died. And he rose again. Why? Well, simply this. Because all of us are compromised in some fashion. That's what sin does. We're all compromised. And so the, the, the hope and the good news is that Jesus dies for the compromised. He dies for the faithless. He is faithful because we are faithless. And having died to secure a people for himself, we now can get his life. We gain his faithfulness. And when God looks at us, he doesn't just see all of our moral compromises, all the ways in which we've fallen short of God's glory, fallen short of God's word. He sees Jesus Christ. He sees Christ's faithfulness to us. I mean, it's one thing to just look at the book of Daniel and say, look at these men. Look at how they just didn't compromise. But I think what it should do for all of us is point out in some tragic ways in which all of us are compromised. We either, based on our personality or where we grew up or our family or our jobs, we either have this natural tendency to run or assimilate. And maybe we do different things in different areas of our lives. And here's a reminder that the hope of the gospel is that even if you are compromised, Christ can redeem you, forgive you, and bring you into his family. You see, the the gospel covers compromised sinners. And then having done so, the gospel empowers us to live lives of greater faithfulness to God. That's what we see here. These men, and I don't want to cheapen their faithfulness, but these men, they lived faithful to God. They stood up to power, and they did so at great cost. But you guys, it gets even better. It gets even better. Look at verse 17. As for these youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all vision and dreams. At the end of, time, at the, end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. These men, it's really clear, these youth, they grew in these three years in knowledge and learning. And Daniel in particular, he becomes the new Joseph. He's wise as relates to dreams and visions. And that's going to come in real handy when you flip over to the next chapter. Three years of training. It's done. And they are ushered into the king's court. And there's Nebuchadnezzar. And he's surveying. And he's trying to get the, the best and brightest in his, son of, in his court. Right? He's trying to see what this three years did educationally for these men. And who rises to the top? Who is the cream of the crop? It's Daniel and his three friends. 
Verse 20. Verse 20 says they are not just better and brighter. It says they are 10 times smarter, 10 times better looking, 10 times wiser, 10 times stronger than the rest. God favors the faithful. As you're faithful, sometimes God favors you in really tangible ways. But God always favors the faithful. Whenever there's a test, a calling to be faithful, if you are faithful to God, his favor will always rest on you. I was golfing with one of my sons, and I thought I was being a cool dad, and I let him drive the golf cart. And he crashed into one of the golf signs on the course. And he broke a piece of it. And I was driving back, and so we stopped to drop off the golf cart. And I said, I got to go in and tell the golf pro what we did. And, and the whole time in my mind, I was thinking, like, do I really have to? I mean, it's not a big deal, right? And even my son was like, oh, and we're going to get in trouble. And I said, no, it's the right thing to do. And so I went in thinking, this is the faithful thing to do. And I did, and it did not go well. But here's the thing. I slept really well that night. I think we underestimate the power of a good and clean conscience. Of being able to rest knowing you did the right thing. Because sometimes you do get fired. Sometimes you have to pay back for your mistakes. Sometimes doing the right thing will cost you. But one thing it didn't cost me was sleep. I slept well. Conscience intact. I mean, oh, the power of a clean conscience. Here we have God's favor resting on these men because they lived faithful to God, even in their faithless world. Now, how is that possible? How is it possible that we or them could live faithfully, faithfully to God in a faithless world? Chapter 1 tells us, it's actually the breakup of our text and how I broke it up. There is a theological melody, a sort of theological harmony that loops over and over and over again. Three times explaining the big theological point of chapter 1. And it's not Daniel and his friend's faithfulness. Okay? I'm not saying that you can't preach dare to be a Daniel, but that's not really what chapter 1 is about. Look at, go to verse 2. I want to point these out. You got to see these. How did Babylon conquer Judah and King Jehoiakim? Verse 2. God gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. How did, God, how did Daniel come up with his plan? And how did Daniel succeed in his plan to eat only Water, or to to eat vegetables and drink only water. How did that plan even work? Verse 9. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief official. Then you might wonder, well, how did they get bigger, stronger, fatter? When they ate that, God did it. And then verse 17. How were they ten times smarter? 
How was it that they rose to prominence in the king's court? Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and literature and wisdom. Do you guys see that constant loop, theological loop? Three times our author says, God did it, God did it, God did it. God sent them to Babylon and God prospered them in Babylon. God is moving the wheels of time in his providential wisdom to his intended purposes. God did it. Now, this shouldn't diminish Daniel's faithfulness. Daniel and his friends are faithful, but their faithfulness is always predicated. It's always grounded. The foundation of their faithfulness, like the foundation of our faithfulness, is always predicated on God's prior faithfulness. God is first and foremost faithful to us. And then we, in turn, in light of his faithfulness, whatever the cost, whatever the sacrifice, to be faithful to God. You see, God did not forsake them. They must have wondered it, but God had not forsaken them. God continually showered his people with his favor, his goodness. He gives them wisdom. He he gives them strength. He gives them everything they need in order to succeed. Because that's the sort of God, that's the sort of God he is. Now, I, I don't know where you come in as you survey this world, this city, this state, the the nature of things. Maybe it's just too far gone. Whatever light was there, the darkness has overcome. And in some ways you might be stirred to flee or might be stirred to fight. And each, in some sense, has its place. But far more important than fleeing, far more important than fighting, Daniel gives us a better strategy And that is faithfulness. Being faithful to God and displaying that faithfulness, whatever the cost, and in some way, thumbing your faithfulness to power and seeing what God does in light of it. You can live faithfully to God in Puyallup or Sumner or Tacoma. You can live faithfully to God wherever he has put you. You can live faithfully to God in whatever neighborhood he sovereignly puts you in. I mean, it's going to take sacrifices, no doubt about that. We said in Daniel. It's going to take wisdom, no doubt about that. We see that in Daniel. It's going to take a community. I mean, this is why we have membership. This is why we have community, because we are not smart enough to figure this out on our, on our own. We need each other to think through what does faithfulness look like in our various contexts. We need Wisdom. We need to live out our consciences. But more than that, we need to realize that God is faithful to us as we are faithful to him. He will not abandon us, even when it's costly. God's with you. He's faithful to you. He's even faithful to forgive you when you compromise. And he's always faithful to empower you to be more faithful when you rise the next day. You see, Daniel, it's really clear, Daniel was not in Babylon accidentally. There was a purpose, a divine purpose. You're not here right now in this city or in this region by accident. If you were supposed to be somewhere else, you'd be somewhere else. You're here, at least for right now. So what does it look like to be faithful? To be faithful to God where God has 
divinely put you. Now, in just closing, look at the last verse of this chapter, and then we're going to be done. Verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel leaves and he gets taken, carted off to Babylon when he's in his teens. And many kings are going to come and go. We're going to see that throughout the book. Until about 70 years is up and King Cyrus comes on the scene. And King Cyrus then allows God's people to finally go home. Daniel lives nearly his entire life in exile. I mean, he's 80. Verse 21 is referring to, to Daniel in his 80s, give or take. 70 years he's going to basically live away from home in Babylon. And probably he was too old to return. So he probably died in Babylon as well. Lived and died in Babylon. His whole life he was waiting for God to fulfill a promise that only late in life did he see come. And we admire it for him, right? We admire Daniel and we call our children to dare to be Daniels. Why? Because that's the sort of men and women we want them to be that wait patiently year after year, decade after decade in the complexities of this broken world and live faithfully to God, rooted in where God put them. And they wait patiently for God to fulfill his promises to them. Well, let me just encourage you in this last bit that the same God who brought the people to Babylon and one day would bring the people out is the same God who brought us here and will one day in either death or in Christ's second coming will bring us home to a far better place than Jerusalem, a far greater home. We're not here by accident. Daniel and these men weren't in Babylon by accident. God had work for them to do in Babylon, and God's got work for us to do here. The question is, will we be faithful? Lord, we, uh, we thank you for, for how you, in so many ways, more ways than we can count, are faithful to us even when we act faithless. God, we we pray as a church that we would together, corporately, that we would help each other think through what does faithfulness look like in our various spheres of influence and that we, having thought this out, always under your word, that we might encourage each other towards greater courage and faithfulness. Lord, we pray that your that you would prosper us in this region and that you'd see your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, Lord, that men and women will come into the kingdom of God. We pray that we would have a great, we would see a great harvest of the king and that we would celebrate taking nothing or robbing nothing from your glory in that work. But we might just thank you and praise you 
for how you are working in our lives, through our lives, for our good, and for your glory. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.